0: Okay, a quick disclaimer. There are no such things as ghosts. We don't wander around with chains and all of that. And then beyond that, I want you to know George C. Scott is not part of our drama ministry here at New Spring. Just in case you were wondering about that. A year ago, it was, we were leading up to Christmas, and Mary Alice and I were in Texas with family. and We were with her sister and her family, and we were, we were watching A Christmas Carol. And one of the things that I noticed when I watched the Christmas Carol, and I've seen it many times before, but it stood out to me how many lessons there were that I thought were, were from the Bible. They were Christian in nature. And I begin to think about those lessons and think about how we need to focus on those as we lead up to Christmas. When when Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas carol, there were those who saw Christian lessons all through it. And many Christians believed that like a a work of Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, that it was an allegory. And in answering that, here's what Charles Dickens said. I've always strived in my writings to express veneration for the life and lessons of our Savior. I thought about that being very interesting. That when Dickens wrote a Christmas carol, he was thinking about the lessons that we learn from Christ. And so our title of our series is Six Life-Changing Lessons from a Christmas Carol. And today, the title of our message, and I'm starting early this year. This is the first time I've ever done a Christmas uh, series and started the week before Thanksgiving. But I just felt like this particular message, we need to hear before we went into any of the holidays. The title of the message is, Mankind Was My Business. As we all know from reading Christmas Carol or watching various movies or adaptations of Christmas Carol, it's a story about a guy named Scrooge who doesn't get it. Scrooge thinks he gets it, but he doesn't. And as he's visited by the ghost of his partner, who would have lived a very similar life in in the previous times, but the partner who in the afterlife comes to tell Scrooge the trouble that he's in, Scrooge attempts to compliment his partner with this statement, and you saw it a moment ago. Jacob, you were always a good man of business. And to that, Marley responds, business, mankind was my business. In fact, I want to read the quote that you just heard a moment ago. Marley's gift says, mankind was my business, the common welfare was my business. Four words, we're going to come back to them in just a moment. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Well, listen to what Marley is saying. The four things that are our business, charity, that's giving people what they don't deserve. And charity is getting more and more rare in our culture, and I don't mean contributing to charities like you and I think about it let's just back that out and make it a more generic description of life giving people what they don't deserve how many times do we say we say or hear someone say I'm not gonna do that for her she doesn't deserve me doing that I'm not gonna do that for him he doesn't deserve my doing that charity is giving people what they don't deserve mercy is not giving people what they do deserve when people deserve harsh treatment perhaps it's being kind to them Mercy is not giving people what they do deserve. And how about this third one, forbearance? Well, in simple terms, forbearance is just means putting up with people. And that's getting more and more challenging too, isn't it? There's, a, there's an aspect of patience and just dealing with people that maybe can do the same dumb things over and over. And I know there's legitimate, tough love treatment of that, but still at the same time, in all of our relationships, if we're going to have any success in life, real life, we're going to have to be willing to put up with people. Because last time I noticed, we all have a sin nature. We're all flawed and broken people. And we want people to put up with us. So let's go through that list again. Charity, giving people what they don't deserve. Mercy, not giving people what they do deserve. Forbearance, putting up with people. And then benevolence. Benevolence is just plain old kindness. Is it just me or in our, in our Internet age in which people are allowed to respond anonymously? Is it just me, or, or is there more hostility and anger and vitriol out there? I've gotten to where I don't even read threads anymore after articles because people just pour out such animosity. And so, again, I just want to go back to Marley's statement to Scrooge. Mankind was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence. Well, the question is, do we get it? Do you and I get this? I want to go now from fiction to truth. I want to take you to the story of Jesus. And this is not like Christmas Carol. It isn't a story of made-up characters. This is a story of true characters. Jesus is going to tell us about three Scrooges. And so if you have your Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 10. If you have an electronic device, you can fire it up on Luke 10. And I want to read you a story that Jesus told. Look for the three Scrooges. The first one's going to be real easy to find. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. You know what an expert is, right? An expert is anyone who goes 300 miles from home and carries a fancy leather briefcase. That's an expert. Well, in Jesus' day, the experts were religious experts. These were guys who had memorized the Bible as it existed at the time. And they knew how to parse it. They knew how to put adapter kits on it. They really did know a lot about the Bible technically. Well, one of these guys comes to give Jesus trouble. As we used to say back in the 70s, he's coming to hassle Jesus. He wants to to pin Jesus. And so he asks him a question. Now, all my life I've heard the statement, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Every teacher here knows that isn't true. There are two dumb questions. What is a dumb question? A dumb question is a question that presupposes a falsehood. In other words, you're left to answer something, but the basis of the question is faulty, and so there really is no answer for it. And that's exactly what happened here with Jesus. The lawyer is going to ask Jesus a dumb question. He thinks it's smart, but it's dumb. And here's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it was dumb on two levels. First of all, in order to get eternal life, there's nothing you can do. You're not going to get to heaven because you do something good. It's because of what God has done for you. So right out of the box, he asked Jesus a question that's unanswerable. What good thing must I do? And, And there was a belief common among people in the first century, especially these elite religionists, There was a belief that there was some sort of Holy Grail special thing that if you found out whatever that mission was and you achieved it, you could go to heaven. And that's kind of what he's asking Jesus, and that's false too. then the second thing he said was, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't inherit eternal life. You can inherit your dad's guitar, but you can't inherit eternal life. And so it was just a crazy question, and his whole intention was to pin Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus flipped him. Jesus said, you're the expert in the law. He asked, he asked the man two questions. What does the law say, and how do you read it? Well, now, now the pressure's back on this, this lawyer, this expert. So he, he answers the question with the words he would have said every day. I think it goes like this. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. Love your, and then he just taxes his son, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus says, fine, you go do that. Knock yourself out is not in the scripture, but that's what I hear when I read this. Because Jesus (laughs) said, well, all you got to do is you got to love God with everything you have and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, great, you go do that, you'll be fine. But who can lay claim to that? I mean, is there anybody here who can lay claim to loving God with all your heart, mind, soul? I mean, I can't say I've done that for five seconds in my lifetime. And this guy knew better than to try to say that he had. So he went for the slower pitch. He said, well, well then who is my neighbor? Just so you and I will understand what he's asking, he's not asking, who am I supposed to love? He is asking Jesus, who is disqualified? Who do I not have to love? Strange, isn't it? That's our human nature. And we live in a culture of that today. There are people that won't have anything to do with others who aren't from their socioeconomic class. Unfortunately, we know all too sadly There are people who won't have anything to do with people of other races. That's a very tragic way to live, but that's what this lawyer is attempting to do with Jesus. I mean, this is a Jewish context. Jesus is Jewish. His followers are Jewish. All the listeners are Jewish. This is asked within a Jewish context, but it could just as easily be asked in an American context or Protestant context or Catholic context or whatever. And he's basically asking Jesus, "Um, who, who do I not have to love? You know, a moment ago, Jesus asked this man two questions, and I like them both. The first question is, what's written in the law? But it's the second question that really gets to me. Jesus asks the guy, how do you read it? In other words, when you open the Bible, how do you read it? With what attitude do you approach the Bible? Hey, I've got good friends who are non-theists, and they know a lot about the Bible, but they read it from a contrarian standpoint. They read it expecting not to believe it. And then I've met people in traditional religion, and maybe you've met some like this too. It's like they read the Bible in order to come up with stuff to intimidate you. My cousin Dennis tells this story, so that must be true. When I grew up, you know, my dad was the oldest of nine, so there was like a thousand, well, not a thousand, but there was a bunch of us in my generation. But most of them were female, except for my cousin Dennis and me. We were the only two male cousins in the Hoover family, and he's four years older than I am. He said one day we were scuffling, and I got a little bit too serious when I was about five or so. I punched him pretty good. And Dennis, four years older than me, was getting ready to really hit me hard. And just as he was about ready to pull back and hit me, he said, I put my hand up. He said, this is true, so it must be. He said, I put my hand up and said, Dennis, you can't hit me because the Bible says you're not supposed to hit back. So if you're watching, Dennis, I told it from your vantage point. But have you ever known people that use the Bible for that? I mean, I'm, this is something that just gets so under my skin. I've heard guys who say to their wives, the Bible says you have to forgive me. Hey, when you hear that, something like that, you're listening to a narcissist, maybe a psycho. But there are people who will utilize the Bible for their own purposes. And then there's a right way to read the Bible. Well, what's the right way to read the Bible? Well, you just need to understand what's there. And so scripture tells us this is what the Bible is about. All scripture is inspired. The two Greek words jammed together. Inspired means God breathed. <laughs> One of the biggest questions I've been asked for the years is, how do you know a bunch of guys didn't get together and just write the Bible? Well, first off, they couldn't have gotten together. The Bible's written by 40 authors over 1,600 years. So no, they didn't get together. Amazing, there's such an integrity in the Bible. You can cut it in any place and it'll agree with itself. So it's amazing in that regard. But the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for three things. Number one, to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. And then number three, the Bible is given to us to prepare and equip us for life. In fact, I start a brand new series the first week of the new year. It'll be the biggest thing I've ever been part of after this series. (laughs) I really believe that. Listen, I would pass a lie detector if it was strapped to me right now. (laughs) Uh, But this series is called Find Your Life. And it's so big, we're going to be in it for eight weeks because we're going to talk about what you need to know. I mean, how does the Bible prepare and equip us for life? So that's what Scripture is for. But we know the lawyer here, Scrooge in our story, that's, that's uh, that's not how he was reading the Bible. The Bible tells us, the answer to that in 10, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. Well, that's just like Dickens Scrooge, isn't it? The Bah Humbug thing? In, in Dickens' Christmas Carol, Scrooge thinks he's right and everybody else is wrong. Cratchit's wrong, his nephew's wrong, the businessmen who want him to contribute are wrong, the people in London who are celebrating Christmas, everybody's wrong except Scrooge. He's like the, the mother who went to see her son in the marching band and noted that everybody was out of step except for her boy. Well, this elitist, he wanted, to, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Who qualifies for my... Life? He wants to engage Jesus in a question of who is worthy, who's an insider, and who's an outsider. Jesus is so cool. You know, you shouldn't mess with somebody who created the universe. You're overmatched. And so this lawyer's about to find that out. Jesus just launches out on a story. Let's read it together. He said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho... When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Some of you have been to Israel. And if you have, you know, if you've been on this road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles long. But it drops 3,500 feet in elevation. You no know, all kinds of switchbacks and narrow spots on this. Um, I've, I've long loved Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon that he preached the night before of his tragic assassination in Memphis. The I've Been to the Mountaintop Sermon. What a great message. It's almost as if God gave him a prescient view of what, was, what he was about to experience. But it was in that mountaintop message that Dr. King talked about this road. And I want to read his quote. He said, I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on the road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for this parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushings. And Dr. King said, it's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody pass. Well, now this message is going to start getting practical for you and me. A dangerous road, Dr. King said. Who do you know who's on a dangerous road? Do you know anybody? And I mean, I mean that in a, in, a, in a spiritual or uh, in, a, in a moral sense. Who do you know in your life that if they keep going down the road, they're going down, they're going to they're get into trouble? Well, maybe you and I need to think about them for a moment. You know, Dr. King talked about the priest in Levite we'll read about in a few moments ago, and he said maybe they didn't stop to help him because they thought he had it coming. How many of us know somebody who's on a dangerous road? and It's like easy to shake our heads and say, well, they should know better. Well, maybe they should. But anyway, this guy's on a dangerous road, and then four things happened to him. And I want you to think about what happened to him physically, and I want you to think about this happening to people emotionally in your life. Notice that they stripped him. When I read about someone being stripped, I think about them losing their dignity. We live in a harsh, mean culture that strips people of their dignity every day. Some of you have had your dignity taken away from you because of ambushes in your life. The second thing is they beat him. That means they hurt him. The third thing is they left him, or he was abandoned. And the fourth thing was he was dying, which many felt like he had no future. Now, let's walk through that again, and let's think about it in emotional terms. Who do you know who's on the wrong road in life, and because of an ambush, they've been stripped of their dignity, they've been hurt, they have been abandoned and left, and they don't feel like they have any future? Think for a moment about that. But while you're thinking about that, Jesus is going to tell us about a couple of other Scrooges. Here's this poor man lying on the road, dying like a ripsack of laundry. And Jesus says a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Let me just parse that out because the Greek language says this. The priest was walking on the same side of the road by the wounded man. If he kept walking straight, he would have walked right into him. But when he got close enough to perceive what was there, he walked over to the other side and kept going. It was as if I don't, if I don't see it, it didn't happen. Well, a priest, you know what a priest is for? A priest is to represent people to God. Evidently, this priest felt like he could do his job without people. And then Jesus tells another, about another guy, a Levite. Well, a Levite had the responsibility of handling the sacred implements of worship. And a Levite, when he came to the place saw him passed by on the other side. I keep thinking about this, this man lying there. If he was conscious at all, did he think that maybe these two guys would stop and help him? But they didn't. They just kept right on going. Then Jesus continues his story in verse 33. But a Samaritan. Work with me for a moment. Time has sanitized this one. If you and I hear the story and this man is wounded on the side of the road and a Samaritan comes along, we're like, oh, good, good, good. A Samaritan, that's great. A Samaritan's a good thing, he'll help. <laughs> And, and we, would, we would have reason for feeling that way. Because Samaritan, being a Samaritan has been changed by definition. Strangely enough, it was changed by this one guy. He changed the whole trajectory of a Samaritan's reputation. Um, we, we, we talk about someone being a good Samaritan. One of the finest Christian organizations in the world is Samaritan's Purse, headed up by Franklin Graham. Many of us will participate in their ministry in these holiday seasons. They do so much good. There are good Samaritan laws. they are good Samaritan hospitals. So, so we're trained to feel real good about this word Samaritan. <laughs> but the lawyer in Jesus' day wouldn't have heard it that way. I know you didn't come into a jam parking lot in long lines and had you know challenged to find a seat here today to hear me talk about history. But if you'll give me just a few seconds, could I give you some history about why Samaritans were considered the way they were? I've done a couple of series this year. One was build it on Nehemiah. The second was legendary. We talked about the Jews going into captivity. And there was part of Israel, the northern part of Israel, that was in captivity longer than any other part. And some of the people that lived in this northern part of Israel did the one thing that was unthinkable to the Jewish mind. They intermarried with their captors. And so this group of people, these Samaritans, They were looked upon by the Jews in Jesus' day as the worst possible people in the world. They had done the one unthinkable thing, and they called the Samaritans dogs. A Jewish person pretty much wouldn't even walk on the same road that a Samaritan walked on. (laughs) One day, Jesus was being ripped by his detractors, and the people said to Jesus, you're a Samaritan, and you have a demon in you. And they were trying to think about the two worst things they could say to Jesus. They said, you're demon-possessed, and oh, by the way, you're a Samaritan. So, in Jesus telling the story, he said a Samaritan came along. Well, there would have been boos and hisses in the crowd. A Samaritan. Now, you know, I've thought about the Samaritan so many times. When he saw this man, interestingly enough, as we'll see in a moment, he was walking down the other side of the road, and he saw this man lying there on the road, and he had to know. I mean, he understood the culture. He had to know that if the roles in life were reversed, that man would probably not stop and help him. But let's read. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. I am challenging you today to think about the expression, Mankind is my business. So in other words, people are, is my, people are my business. The Samaritan is going to coach us up on five things that he did. If you and I want to think this way and live this way, I want you to see five things the Samaritan did and think about how they can be manifested in your life and my life and the people that are in, my, in our lives. Here's number one. He came where he was. Every time I read this, I always, always think about identifying with someone. He came where he was. He went to him. And the second thing that he did was that he cared. He empathized with him. He put himself in that place and thought, well, what if that had been me? In other words, what he saw with his eye affected his heart. And then the third thing, the Bible says he poured in oil and wine. Oil would have been a soothing ointment. Wine would have been an antiseptic. I think this is significant, New Spring. Watch watch this one. Number three was he did something. Many of us are good at the first two. We're good at empathizing, going to where someone is and, and caring about it. But many times we don't do anything. And I don't, I don't want to wax long and you know, talk about this at, at length. But one of the reasons why I think we're less inclined to be charitable than previous generations is we're almost submerged with information about tragedy from media sources. We hear about tragedies all over the world. There's some ongoing court case. We'll have it in the news every day. And it's almost as if we're so inundated by bad news, we're paralyzed with a feeling, well, I can't change all that. Unlike our great-great-grandparents who lived, for the most part, in rural communities. And when somebody was suffering in the community, it was natural for the community to rise up and do something. I think many times we're just paralyzed because we're saturated with painful stories about people. Andy Stanley, who pastors North Point Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, brought a talk a couple of years ago in which I thought he had a powerful point. He said, you and I need to do for one what we wish we could do for all. Obviously, we can't change everybody who's hurting, but we can do something for someone. And he said, you should do for one person what you wish you could do for everybody. Now, think with me for just a moment. What if everybody who was a God follower decided to do for one what they wish they could do for everyone? Think about the difference it would make in our world. And so I love this about the Samaritan, he did something. It wasn't enough just to see him, to empathize with him. He got off his donkey, took out, took out his oil and wine, and he, he met the needs to the extent that he could. The fourth thing was he sacrificed. Many of us will do something out of our pocket of plenty, but we won't reach into our pocket of sacrifice. The Bible says he put the man on his own donkey well, the donkey was there for his comfort and his speed going down this road, this very dangerous road. But he got out of his place on the donkey and put the wounded man on. And then the fifth thing, he took responsibility. How many times do we hear, well, that's not, that's not my fault, or it's not my, it's not my responsibility. You know, she knew better, he knew better. And yet the Bible says he took responsibility. And then Jesus goes on to, the, to to say this to the lawyer, and I think he's asking you and me the same thing. He said, "Which of these would you say was neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits?" That's a good thing, because this guy was asking, "Who is my neighbor?" And now Jesus is telling the story and said, "Tell me who was it? Who was the neighbor in the story?" Well, we can see now that this liar is unchanged because he he should say the Samaritan, but he can't even bring himself to say that. So he just says, up the one who showed mercy. Jesus said, well, you go do the same thing. Jesus has a message for the Scrooges among us today and for the Scrooge that's really in all of our hearts at some place. And his message is the same as we saw it in Dickens' story. People are our business. I mean, how many times have we heard the expression, it's not personal, it's just business? You know where that came from? That's one of the most quoted lines from the movie The Godfather. That's about mafia people. So the next time you hear someone say, it's not personal, it's just business, maybe we ought to think about that. You say, well, Mark, are you saying business is personal? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying personal is business. People are business. Nobody on his deathbed ever said, I wish I'd made another dollar. But there are a lot of people on deathbeds who wish they had treated the people differently in their lives. Strange, isn't it, how like Scrooge, we can sort of segregate the people in our life from making money. It's like it's in two categories. And you have what we've learned today from Jesus and from Dickens is that people are our business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence, those are our business. You say, oh, Mark, I, I don't know. I, I still, I think people just get on my nerves and they, they just, I don't, I don't think I want to do this. Well, maybe before you say that, you might want to think about something you remember the good Samaritan and the five things that he did he came where he was he cared he did something and and then he sacrificed and he took responsibility who's the good Samaritan in our lives (laughs) man it's Jesus didn't he come where we were that's the story of Christmas God came to earth then he cared about us God so loved the world that he did something he gave his life on the cross and then he sacrificed the blood that came out of his body was a payment for our sins and then he took responsibility for us as if to say it's not your responsibility to get yourself into heaven jesus said it's my responsibility to get you into heaven well if jesus would do that for us shouldn't we do that for people i want you to pray with me for just a moment in our talk today we've closed with the fact that jesus did all these things for us i I don't want to end this talk without asking you have you responded to his gift because the truth of the matter is the person who's bruised broken lying in the road of life going down bad road is you and me because that's what our sins have done to us but god loved us so much that jesus came to die for us and and here we are you know getting ready to go into thanksgiving I want to ask you the question, do you know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you were to leave this life, that you would go to heaven? If you don't have that certainty in your life, you can have it. And the interesting thing about that is, is that it's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has already done for you and about you receiving the gift of eternal life. A few moments ago, I started to quote the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish or be lost, but will have everlasting life. And as I close out this talk today, I just want to give you a chance to invite Jesus Christ into your life. You can do that right now where you are. You don't have to wait. You don't have to have a minister pray with you or talk to a priest or, you know, you can can do that right where you are because you can talk directly to God. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you want to own them in your heart, you can reach out to God and be sure that you have a place forever in heaven because of what Jesus has done for you. You ready to pray with me? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. Thank you. In Jesus' name. I know that happened quickly. You can say, Mark, I don't know if anything happened to me. Well, do this. And I know we're crowded today and congested. But if you just prayed to receive Christ, you just pray a prayer, I have a packet for you. It's got a DVD and a book I wrote. And I have ADD, so it's a real small book. And and it, it, this book answers a lot of questions. And it's free. It won't cost you anything. There's a coupon for a new Bible in there. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. Guest service is right out in the middle of that lobby there, and there's a little one back by the coffee shop. Nobody will hassle you. They Just just say, I pray with Mark. That's all you got to say, and they'll give it to you. Thank you so much for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.